Father, I thank you for this time in chapel this morning. I pray that you would bless the time in your word. Give our students insight to reach their generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Several years ago, our son Larry was battling with cancer, and it was a very, very difficult time for our family. And uh, one day, I was talking with Dr. David Gibbs, and Dr. Gibbs said to me, he said, you know, you might want to ask Larry if there's something down the road that he would enjoy doing so that he can kind of get his mind off the chemo and the surgeries and, and uh, just have something to look forward to. And so I asked him, I said, Larry, is there something that you would, would like to do down the road? And, and uh, he looked at me and without hesitation, he said, you know, Dad, I'd really like to go to Athens. And I thought, you know, I was expecting him to say like Disneyland or, you know, Knoxbury Farm, something like that. He said, I'd really like to go to Athens. Now, when you are older and when you have children that uh, are of that age and suffering maybe with something like that, and I hope that never happens to you, but when you get into that type of a situation uh, and you hear a request like that, frankly, if he would have said, Dad, I'd like to take a rocket to the moon, I would have tried to make that happen. And so I took that request and I... Uh, began to plan a trip to Athens, and uh, we were able to visit Corinth and some other biblical cities as well. And it was a wonderful time of learning. Athens was the city that the brethren from Berea sent the Apostle Paul to when he was being persecuted, uh, and he was threatened by enemies from Thessalonica. And so he really arrives at Athens uh, in a sense, hiding or at least laying low from persecution. Athens was the intellectual capital of the world at that time. And uh, so here he was, a gospel preacher in a city given over to idolatry, given over to uh, this uh, intellectualism, paganism. The central focus of Athens, if you ever study or read or visit Athens, you'll know that the central focus is the Acropolis. It's this large rock, kind of a mountain, about 500 feet above uh, sea level. And on top of the Acropolis were the various gods to the pagan deities. And these were places where uh, even sometimes human sacrifice took place. Sometimes there was uh, various different types of uh, rituals that involved uh, various types of sexual activity and immorality. It was a very, very wicked place indeed. And uh, uh, this uh, uh, area had one particular building, the Parthenon, which is where they worshipped the many gods of the Greek people. Demonic idolatry literally lined the skyline of Athens. And so Paul enters into this ancient city and uh, one writer said of this, G. Campbell Morgan said, the very conjunction of names is, a, is arresting. Athens, a sacred shrine of paganism, and Paul, the most faithful incarnation of the Christian pa uh, passion. So here you have the most pagan city with the most passionate preacher coming together. What an amazing thought this is. Now Paul's fundamental concern in Athens was not uh, cultural understanding or contextualization. In other words, how can I dumb it down? In other words, his main thought was, how can I get Christ to them with clarity? Paul uh, was a preacher who was fiercely 
counter-cultural. Now, I want you to remember that because in a day when there's so much over-contextualizing of the ministry, Paul viewed his ministry as countercultural. In other words, he knew that what he was going to say was going to go against the way of the intellectual pagans of that particular society. Uh, last night, boys, please stop turning the buttons if you would. In fact, let me just go to this microphone here because you're, you're uh, not helping me. So let's turn this one up here, okay? Thank you. That's so much better. Thank you. Last night, I was talking to my grandsons, and my grandsons are uh, six and eight, and uh, I was teaching them about what we call the cancel culture, the cancel culture. And I was telling them that they're going to have to have the willingness, and remember, they're six and eight years old, and I was telling them, you're going to have to have the willingness to stand for Jesus because there could come a day when someone might try to fire you from a job because you believe in Jesus Christ. There could come a day when someone wouldn't hire you or someone uh, is mean to you just because you're a Christian. Can you imagine having to tell that to a six and eight-year-old? How many of you understand that's the world they're probably going to grow up in? So Paul, this passionate Christian, comes into this really God-hating environment. And I want you to learn just a few things about it because to some degree or another, all of you are going to face this cancel culture. All of you are going to step into a situation like Athens if you intend to fulfill the calling of God upon your life. So let's just look at some things briefly this morning. Notice, if you would, first of all, the spirit of the man of God. The spirit of the man of God. The Bible says in verse 16, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred within him. His heart was stirred. Now the word stirred, if you're taking notes, and young people on the back row, I hope you're taking notes there, uh, right by the pole there. I don't see that you have a Bible even in your hand. Hope you have, hold your Bibles up. Let me see that you're good. All right, good. Follow along with me here. Notice it says, his spirit was stirred. If you're taking notes, notice it says, uh, here, he was stirred. What does that mean? It means that he was provoked. It means that he had a holy rage. It means that he had a burning compassion. He was provoked, he had a holy rage, he had a burning compassion. Now I want to ask you a question this morning, student body, and here's the question. When you go through, say, Los Angeles, you drive from LAX to Lancaster, or when you're just even out soul winning and just see people, is there ever a time in your life when you're stirred about it? Do you ever look at the newspaper like I did this morning and and uh, seeing elected officials in Sacramento using curse words to describe Christian people. Does that ever stir a passion in you, or is it just ho-hum? Do you have enough discernment or concern in your life to get stirred up about what's going on around you? Here we see that his heart was stirred. Now, Lamentation 3 tells us, Mine eye hath affected mine heart. Let's say that together. Mine I hath affected mine heart. So what we see here is that uh, the Apostle Paul was a passionate man. Now you may not have the same expression of passion as some other people. Some people in your dorm are loud and they talk all the time and they're, you, know, you know right where they stand on everything. You may have a deeper, quieter passion. I'm not trying to describe or define passion simply by a, an emotional response. But there should be a response when we see what's happening, for example, in the United States of America right now. And Paul the Apostle was stirred when he saw it. And, and I believe we are not as stirred as we should be these days. 
I believe there's a, there's a problem in our independent Baptist churches with a passionless generation of people. People that have their church, their youth group, their pastor, their whatever comfort zone, but they do not have a passion. Think about this. In Los Angeles City, three million in the city proper, there are three independent Baptist churches. One for every one million. You say, well, hopefully there's some others. There are very few others that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I remember going soul winning with Dr. Roland Garlick as we stood and looked over the city of Los Angeles and, and he began to weep and he told me, he said, Brother Chapel, this is one of the least evangelized Spanish-speaking cities in the world today. He said, there are more independent Baptist churches in Mexico City per capita than there are in Los Angeles. And the same could be said of other major cities in America. And yet, somehow we miss that. And don't lose your passion while you're in Bible college. Here we see that his heart was stirred. And then notice his spirit was pressed within him. Uh, the Bible speaks of this in Acts 18. And it says concerning uh, his ministry at Corinth, which was just maybe 80 miles away. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit. The word pressed means constrained. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 that necessity was laid upon him to preach the gospel. And I believe that there needs to be a pressing in our spirit, a stirring in our spirit. People still worship the God of Athene. Uh, they worship uh, the sac the, uh, uh, these gods as sacred, the gods of humanism. They worship still the ancient god of Athens known as the god of Demeter, which is the earth goddess. They still worship the intellectual gods, the, uh, the earth goddess. They still worship Zeus. Zeus was the, the god of force. They still speak of it. May the force be with you. And we still have today paganism, humanism, intellectualism, all types of philosophies pulling men's hearts and minds away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and we must maintain a passion. And what I see here is the spirit of the man of God was a spirit that could be stirred up. And I want to ask you this question today. Do you ever get stirred up about your country or your city or, or anything? Is there anything that stirs you up today in the realm of God and God's work? When I came here 35 years ago, I didn't have much of anything resource-wise financially. I didn't have a staff. I didn't have a budget. We didn't have offerings over $300 a week. Our offerings were $300 a week. We didn't have anything other than a holy calling and passion from God. And if you are a young man or woman that sometimes you see people and you, you pity and you sense there's a need or you, you can go through a city and see a need or a mission field and, and your heart is moved, it may be that God has called you to the ministry. And if you can visit Manila or Tokyo or Los Angeles and never feel anything, I really wonder what's going on in your spiritual life. Because when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. It moved him. God, forgive us for not being a people who feel and are moved with compassion. The spirit of the man of God was a spirit that could be moved. 
When Paul was in Athens, his spirit was moved. But notice, secondly, the strategy of a man of God. The strategy of a man of God. What's he going to do with this passion? Verse 17, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met him. I want you to notice that the actions of a man are the best interpreters of his thoughts. The actions of a man are the best interpreters of his thoughts. Now, when someone has passion, they will move to action. I happen to believe that most of you are here because at some point there was some passion in your heart to to help, to serve, to be used of God. That's what this college does. It equips people for the work of the ministry. And God put a passion on your heart, and he did on Paul's heart. So what does he do? We see, first of all, the proclamation of his ministry. He begins to dispute in the synagogue with the Jews. There's there's no way a man like Paul could go to a city like Athens and say nothing. But how do you go to work and hear the cursing and all the rest of it and the God-denying and say nothing? And how can we go by thousands of people or millions of people and do nothing. You see, if there's a stirring in the heart, there will be a speaking from the heart about the truth of God. Dr. Curtis Hudson said, the only alternative to soul winning is disobedience. The only reason that we would not share Christ in this generation is a passionless disobedience. And so the Bible tells us that he reasoned with them. They disputed uh, they uh, reasoned, they discussed, they argued. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asketh the reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and in fear. You are in this college to be made ready so that you can give the answers to a world that is asking questions today about deep issues. And many times... As the world needs these answers, the church is stuttering or they're silent. And God has called us to speak into this culture. God has called us not to be an argumentative jerk, but to speak into the culture the truth of the Word of God, to be always ready to give an answer. And I believe it is so true that it is insufficient today uh, for youth groups and churches to focus on entertainment and eating worms and swallowing goldfish and and the latest rock and roll, Christian rock and roll, so-called entertainment forms. That is not what the world needs today. The world needs you to speak truth into their culture culture. They don't need more entertainment. They've got so many bands. Come on, help me here. They've got so many TV shows. They've got so much uh, fun out there. They don't need another Christian voice singer trying to be some kind of a superstar. They need the truth of God's word. So he reasoned with them and then he preached to them. Look at verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will the babbler say? Others, some, he seemed to be a setter forth of a strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Paul knew this, that they would think that his message was foolish, that he was foolish, but he knew if he would just get the message out, the death, burial, and resurrection was something unlike any of the philosophers, any of their uh, temples of pagan worship could possibly match if he could just preach it. 
there would be a result. And that is true to this very day. And you may feel like, well, I failed when I shared the gospel. If you shared the gospel, you did not fail. You planted an incorruptible seed that God can always use. And this is why we're commanded, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And so we see the proclamation of his ministry. Notice quickly the location of his ministry. This is perhaps significant to reaching the culture. He went to the synagogue, verse 17 tells us reasoning with God-fearing Gentiles and Jews. He went to the market, verse 17, called the Agora. This would imply that he went downtown. This is why our church in the summer, we have uh, kind of a downtown market on Lancaster Boulevard, and we go there with uh, either lemonade or hot dogs or whatever, and we pass out gospel tracts. Why? We want to get in the middle of it. We go go out to the... um, uh, Antelope Valley Fairgrounds during the fair time and we set up a booth and we go out door knocking into the city. Look at, we've got to get out amongst the people. This is what Paul did. And, and, and here there was some interest, but they thought he was a setter forth of strange gods. They, they didn't uh, quite understand. Then he goes up uh, to the Areopagus up in verse 18 and 19, and the Areopagus rather. He goes up and uh, he's right in the middle of them again, verse uh, 19, and they took him and brought him up under the Areopagus saying, may we we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. And he's speaking here to the Stoics. These were pantheists. He's speaking here to the Epicureans. They were atheists. The point is, he's going in different parts of the culture, speaking to different kinds of people with different viewpoints. Too many times as Christians, we huddle together and we think if we have a youth group with a youth activity with three other churches that come and all of these saved kids and we huddle together with the saints and encourage the saints, that that is enough. That is wonderful, but it is not enough until they are mobile to go back to their public schools, back to their neighborhood, and to teach and preach Jesus Christ. We're not going to reach the world with holy huddles all the time amongst just Christians. We've got to go out where the people are. We've got to understand the necessity of having a strategy to go to different places, to different kinds of people, and to know how to answer them along the way. And so we see the spirit of a man of God is a spirit that is stirred up for his nation, for the city where he is. We see the strategy was to go from place to place to place, reaching different kinds of people with the gospel. And then let me just share with you thirdly this morning the sermon of the man of God, the sermon. Now, as Paul stood there in verse 22, I want you to see what he says in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now, it had been four centuries since Socrates stood on this same exact place teaching his philosophy. Four centuries later, the Apostle Paul's summation of this city is that you people are too superstitious. You're worshiping every kind of a God, any kind of a God. You're worshiping pleasure. Some of you believe in no God. You're full of superstition. And so he begins to preach to them. His message that he gives to them, his sermon, first of all, is that there is one true God. He says, uh, you're, you're too superstitious. He says, as I passed by, verse 23, I beheld your devotion. I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And so he begins in verse 24, God that made all the world, 
world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations for all men to dwell. And he just begins to preach Christ here. I want you to notice in verse 27 that they that seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. He spends his time preaching the gospel. Now, a couple of things. There is a true God, Paul says. He speaks to the illusion of many false religions. He says, you're too superstitious. Have any of you ever seen the bumper sticker that says coexist? How many of you have ever seen that bumper sticker? And it has the symbols of all the religions of the world, the major religions. And what is it saying? First of all, it's saying that Christianity is on a par level with the witchcraft and uh, with uh, Islam. It's bringing all the religions down. It's bringing Christ down to that level. It's a superstitious bumper sticker. It's a bumper sticker that invokes the idea that you can find God through any one of these. But to that culture, we must say, you are too superstitious. You cannot find God in all of this. That there is a God who sent his son, who lived a perfectly sinless life, who died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, and his name is Jesus Christ. And you're going to find a lot of people that say they're spiritual, but they are not saved. And so he is cutting through the illusion of so many different kinds of religions. He is giving them the identity of the one true God. Verse 24, he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Notice the phrase, God that made. He is describing here the creator God, the God of the universe. Uh, the, the, not only does he exist, but he is knowable and he has revealed himself to man. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he is, he is the in the beginning God, Paul would tell them. He is not a distant God, Paul is telling them. He's not divorced from his creation. He is not in man-made temples. He is not locked in creation. He is great and powerful, but not to be, uh, he is not so great that he's not concerned with men. And, and so he begins to introduce them to the very God of the universe, the creator God, and to the nature of that God. He gives them uh, external evidence of that God. Psalm 19 in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. He gives them the teleological argument that that is that whenever there is a program, whenever there is a plan, then there must be a programmer and a planner. There must be a designer and that the designer of all that they see in worship is God himself and that they're worshiping the creature, Romans chapter 1, but not the creator God. And so he's pointing them to God, Psalm 94 and verse 9. He that planteth the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? see. And so Paul is introducing to this superstitious city the knowledge he is reintroducing to them, a knowledge that is being lost in America, that is the knowledge of God, the presence of the true God. And then he reminds them of the power of the true God, the power of the true God. Notice his power in verse 24 when he, when he speaks respecting it, seeing that the Lord of heaven and earth dwelleth not in temples made with hands. He gives to them the mindset and the understanding that God is the creator of heaven and earth, Colossians 1.16, that by him all things were created, that by him all things are upheld. 
And then in his lordship, he reminds them that he is lord over all. He is the sovereign life giver. Verse 25, uh, the Bible says, he doesn't need anything. We worship and serve a God that doesn't need anything. He is the life giver himself. He is over history and geography. Verse number 26. He hath made one blood of all nations and hath determined the things before appointed uh, and the bounds of their habitation. He's over geography. Uh, he, he is over of the universe itself. Daniel 3.27, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for thou, for the God of heaven hath given thee a, a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And, and so Paul uh, uses uh, nature here as an illustration of God's power, uh, but he is simply reminding them that God is the creator that needs to be worshipped. He reminds them in this sermon of a three points. He gives them first the presence of the true God, second the power of the true God, and thirdly, the provision of the true God. In Acts 17, beginning at verse number 30, the Bible says, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. Here he preaches to them concerning their need to repent uh, from all of this pagan idolatry and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we do not teach repentance in the sense of a works salvation, but let's be clear. You can't worship at the Parthenon. You can't worship all the gods of Athens and just add Jesus to it. That's a soft sellout that many preachers get involved in, and they'll say, oh, wonderful, he prayed with us. That's not enough. Oh, wonderful. He has a Bible. That's not enough. The question is, has he trusted in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of his sin? It's not enough to say that someone is uh, spiritual or that they pray or that they have a Bible. You can't worship at the, at the Parthenon and, uh, and claim Jesus at the same time. There must be a turning, and that's why he says in Acts 17.30, now commandeth every man everywhere to repent. Notice that in verse number 30. What's he doing? He's calling them to turn to Christ. As it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, to turn, uh, to turn to Christ is to turn from the things they were worshiping before. And so here is the call to repentance. Acts 20 and 21 says it this way, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, listen, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is a change of mind, and they must change their mind about the Parthenon and about the God of heaven and his son, Jesus Christ. And so with that, there would be salvation from judgment. There would be a home in heaven for all of eternity. Notice, if you would, in verse 31, the Bible says, Bless, Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in, in that he hath raised him from the dead. You know what he's telling them? He's saying, look it, you can have the assurance of resurrection. Just prior to coming in here, I was dealing with several uh, folks in our church that are very ill, uh, and, and uh, I've got to tend to some of those matters in a moment. But I'm going to tell you something. You pastor a church this large, one thing that is constantly before you is the fact that that this life is temporal. It's so temporal. I prayed so much for Dr. Rasmussen's sister-in-law yesterday. 
uh, Kelly Rasmussen with the brain aneurysm. Thankfully, she came through the surgery. But these are life and death matters. And there's one thing that this culture, even though they have all their different uh, reasonings, all their different paganisms, even in America, every one of them know that there's coming a day when this life will end. And they can laugh about that. They can joke about going down to hell with all of their friends. But in their heart, they wonder. They wonder. And the Apostle Paul said, the God who created you, the God who established nations, the God uh, who orders his creation, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he conquered death and the grave, verses 30 and 31. And he's telling them that they can have a resurrection only through Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you today, I want you to think about this. Do you have a passion today? Does that passion lead you to want to do something, to go to Bible college, to find a mission field, to find a city, to join together somehow to make a difference? Does it cause you to want to preach a sermon, to share the truth? Or are you a passionless Baptist? Are you a Baptist that doesn't care to learn the arguments scripturally that could arrest someone's attention and save someone's soul? This generation needs you to be stirred. And don't let them intimidate you with their dress and their attitude and their cursing and their humanism. They are a people crying out with their dyed hair and their pierced body and their transgenderism. They are crying out in confusion. They are worshiping all the wrong gods. And they need us to go to them in the midst of their Epicureanism to go to them in the midst of their stoicism, to go to them in their places of worship, their concerts, wherever they might be, and to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How's your passion? How's your passion? Paul could not stand in Athens without being stirred up. So many Christians today are no longer stirred. May God help us to stay stirred up for lost souls.